Good morning. My name is Karen. I'm privileged to read the scripture this morning. Our passage comes from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through 36. If you're in the Black Chair Bibles, that's on page 234. Hear the word of the Lord. Eli's sons were wicked men. They did not respect the Lord or the priest's share of the sacrifices from the people. When anyone offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged meat fork while the meat was boiling and plunge it into the container, kettle, cauldron, or cooking pot. The priest would claim for himself whatever the meat fork brought up. This is the way they treated all the Israelites who came there to Shiloh. Even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the one who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast, because he won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. If that person said to him, the fat must be burned first, then you can take whatever you want for yourself. The servant would reply, no, I insist that you hand it over right now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. So the servant's sin was very severe in the presence of the Lord, because the men treated the Lord's offering with contempt. Samuel served in the Lord's presence. This mere boy was dressed in a linen ephod. Each year, his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife. May the Lord give you children by this woman in place of the one she has given to the Lord. Then they would go home. The Lord paid attention to Hannah's need and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old. He heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they were sleeping with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He said to them, Why are you doing these things? I have heard about your evil actions from all these people. No, my sons, the news I hear the Lord's people spreading is not good. If one person sins against another, God can intercede for him. But if a person sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to their father, since the Lord intended to kill them. By contrast, the boy Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. A man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Didn't I reveal myself to your forefather's family when they were in Egypt and belonged to Pharaoh's palace? Out of all the tribes of Israel, I chose your house to be my priests, to offer sacrifices on my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your forefather's family all the Israelites' fire offerings, why then do, you, do all of you despise my sacrifices and offerings that I require at the place of worship? You have honored your sons more than me by making yourselves fat with the best part of all the offerings of my people Israel. Therefore, this is the declaration of the Lord, the God of Israel. I did say that your family and your forefather's family would walk before me forever, but now this is the Lord's declaration, no longer. For those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disgraced. 
Look, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your forefather's house so that none in your family will reach old age. You will see the distress in the place of worship in spite of all that is good in Israel and no one in your family will ever again reach old age. Any man from your family I do not cut off from my altar will bring grief and sadness to you. All your descendants will die violently. This will be the sign that will come to you concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Both of them will die on the same day. Then I will raise up a faithful priest for myself. He will do whatever is in my heart and mind. I will establish a lasting dynasty for him, and he will walk before my anointed one for all time. Anyone who is left in your family will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. He will say, please anoint me to some priestly office so I can have a piece of bread to eat. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. Uh, I have a strange thing that I do. About every uh, one or two years, I will read a uh, dark post-apocalyptic novel. Uh, this is a strange admission because I do this specifically uh, knowing that it will make me sad as I'm brought into the world of this novel where uh, some sort of apocalypse has killed most of us and the rest of us are left to live like without society and all sorts of terrible things happen. Uh, as I'm brought into that world, uh, it brings me down and it, and it gives me this sense of like, oh, like, uh, where is God? Like, there's got to be some hope or like some story that God is working. And, and, and then I finish the novel and I close the novel. And that feeling of dread gives way to the feeling of thankfulness that that's not reality, right? I, I, I close the novel and then it's like, ah, oh, and that's not real. God is on the throne. He's sovereign. He's near to me. He loves me. He cares for me. And, and so it's almost like going through the dark imaginative universe and then coming out of that and then coming into the reality one uh, makes me appreciate God and the gospel all the more all over again. Uh, this passage this morning uh, is almost like that. I almost get that same feeling in thinking about this passage. Because what we have in this passage is what it was like to live in Israel with bad priests. What it's like to live in the age of redemption when, when priests are mediating their sacrifices and they're no good. And there's this sense of dread through this passage that by going through and, and, and considering this difficult passage together, I think it'll make us appreciate the wonderful, lovely hope that we have uh, all the more. So the main point of today's sermon is this. God loves his people. So he removes the corrupt priests and replaces them with a better one. God loves his people. So he removes the corrupt priests and replaces them with a better one. So we'll take this in three kind of movements through three sections of the, of the, the passage. So first we see Hophni and Phinehas are corrupt, but Samuel is not. 
So Hophni and Phineas open up our story by being rather sinful. So first of all, what is the nature of their sin? I see them committing two related sins in the passage. The first sin is that they simply do not respect the Lord. So we see that from the beginning, verse 12. Eli's sons were wicked men. They did not respect the Lord or the priest's share of the sacrifices from the people. When anyone offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged meat fork while the meat was boiling and plunge it into the container, kettle, cauldron, or cooking pot. The priest would claim for himself whatever the meat fork brought up. This is the way they treated all the Israelites who came there to Shiloh. So the way that the, the Old Testament law system was set up is that the priests were this full-time job where they would get payments via the sacrifices uh, from the other tribes, and they would do the sacrifice process, uh, be in charge of that. And uh, so they'd get their payment from the sacrifices. But they here have gone above and beyond and taken more for themselves. They created the new, uh, also I get a forkful of your food rule. It sounds a lot more like the, um, the bu bully being like, uh, I get one bite of your sandwich rule. Um, some arbitrary thing they made up that is harming people and uh, stealing from what uh, they have, have brought there to sacrifice. But it gets worse. Uh, if that wasn't bad enough, it escalates here in verse 15. Even before the fat was burned, the, priest served, the priest's servant would come and say to the one who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast, because he won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. If the person said to him, the fat must be burned first, then you can take whatever you want for yourself. The servant will reply, no, I insist that you hand it over right now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. So the servant's sin was very severe in the presence of the Lord because the men treated the Lord's offering with contempt. So the way these sacrifices were supposed to work is that uh, the, the fat of the animal would be butchered and cut off, and that part of the animal would be burnt all the way up, not just cooked burnt, but cooked all, burnt all the way up. And that was considered the Lord's portion. That was what God wanted specifically to be burned for him. That was the pleasing aroma to the, to, the, to the Lord. The fat of the animals actually referred to sometimes as God's bread. God's bread, this special portion that he wants from the sacrifice to be all for himself. The, the meat part could be eaten by the person bringing the sacrifice, but not this part. And Hophni and Phinehas are specifically now going after even that part of the animal. They're specifically uh, saying, before you cook, we're going to take the meat raw, before you cut off the, the fat, and we're going to take this for ourselves because we want to grill it ourselves. So their sin is very severe here. What they are doing is they are uh, demanding that their own appetites be filled over giving God his due. They are wanting their meat the way they want it over the Lord and his sacrifice. So that's their first sin. They're not honoring God. They're honoring what they want more than God. The second sin that we see mentioned is in verse 22. You see that they were sleeping with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So secondly, they have this sexual sin. So they are 
absolutely making a mockery of God. These are the priests of God who are uh, designed by God to be able to uh, mediate between a unholy people and a holy God, make a way using God's system of sacrifices and everything to, for a, a holy God to live with people. And here is what they are doing. They are taking women who were serving alongside them and defiling them. In so doing, they are defiling the temple or the, the tabernacle itself. The, the brashness of this, the complete lack of fear of God in this is hard to overstate. One thing it does is it actually uh, makes you think of the other Phineas. So the Old Testament has two Phineases. Um, and there's this Phineas, Hophni and Phineas, and then there's uh, Numbers 25 Phineas. And uh, unsurprisingly, when we named our son Phineas, we were not naming him after the Hophni and Phineas <laughs> Phineas. Uh, I'm glad to be preaching this today so that I can get that out there clear uh, for you all to know. Uh, however, as I'm about to tell you what the other Phineas did, you might be equally still surprised and scratch your head at our choice to name our son uh, Phineas after even the other Phineas. So let's talk about the first Phineas. The first Phineas, number 25, is living in the time of Moses, and the people of Israel have fallen into various idolatries and then been rescued from them, and then this is a time when they are absolutely going headlong away from the Lord and falling into adultery. They, it says they are prostituting themselves to the Midianites, and they are in so doing, in, in, in prostituting themselves with the Midianites, they are taking part in their Baal worship. So they are uh, really running against the Lord. And the Lord brings a plague against them, and he commands the uh, priests and the judges of the people to go and kill all the leaders, the leaders who were leading the people into this uh, apostasy. And as the, the godly of the, of the nation are weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting over the plague and the judgment and like all the bad stuff that's happening, the sin, as they're weeping, one Israelite comes with a Midianite woman and walks right in front of the tent of meeting and goes to their tent. And Phineas, it says, is filled with zeal for the glory of God. And he takes a spear and he goes and executes the, uh, the man and the woman in the tent. Phineas cared deeply for God's glory. And in his action of standing strong and obeying what God had told them to do, he actually atoned for the people, Israel, and God stopped the plague and stopped all the leaders from having to be killed, and they turned back to him. Here's what it says. It says, God commended Phinehas with a covenant of perpetual priesthood for him and his future descendants because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the Israelites. So that Phinehas is known for standing up strong for God's glory in the midst of a culture that was accepting sexual sin as normal. Now, Hophni and Phineas, Phineas is so 
deeply ironically the inverse, the worst possible uh, opposite of that of his namesake. Hophni and Phineas are are not standing up against the the culture and their fleshly desires. Instead, they have zero fear of God. They have zero concern for the glory of God. They have certainly zero zeal for the glory of God. They've just completely capitulated to the sinful desires of their hearts and of the culture. This comparison between the two Phineas is interesting, I think. Um, I think when it comes to sexual sin and our culture and our flesh, sometimes it feels this extreme, doesn't it? Where you either stand up and take a radical stand for what the Bible says is true, or you capitulate. It feels extreme and radical to say, Monogamous heterosexual marriage is the context for sex. It feels crazy to say no sex before marriage. It feels crazy to say no pornography. It feels crazy to to, to not make your sexuality the core of your identity. It's increasingly a, 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 a radical thing to even just adopt for your own life. So clearly, uh, we don't live in the, the context in which these two Phineases live, where we have capital punishment or uh, uh, given into the hands of the church or, or anything like that. But uh, just living righteously yourself can be about as radical as the first Phineas's righteousness. Um, either we're going to live radically different from the culture or we're going to end up being radically indifferent to God's glory. So my prayer for our church is the same as my prayer for my son, Phineas, and that's that we will be a people who have an on-fire concern for God's glory that compels us to live righteously in an unrighteous age. Now, there's a fear that some of you might be feeling, where there's a, a sense of, okay, I, I get it, like plant your flag, live righteously, but a nag in your head of saying, ah, if, I, if I do that, then I'm a hypocrite because of the sins that I have already committed. And I want to uh, affirm to you that there is a humble boldness available to you in the gospel. A, humil- a humility that acknowledges your sin and confesses it and repents of it and applies the gospel to it and can walk forward. And then a boldness that then can still say what the Lord says is true and I'm going to stand on what he tells us of how to live. There's a humble boldness available to you in the gospel. In doing that, your friends may still call you prudish or fundamentalist. Your enemies may call you bigoted or hateful. But brothers and sisters, I know what you really want is for the Lord to call you faithful. When we live for his glory by the power of the Spirit through the gospel, he will. So 
That's the nature of their sin, uh, both their sexual sin and the dishonoring of God. What's the harm of their sin? This is the terrible result of their sin. Israel is left without a mediator. Imagine being an Israelite under these priests. You, you know that you have sinned and that you need a middleman between you and God. You know that you are not holy and that you need a mediator between you and God. You need an advocate, somebody to speak to God on your behalf. That's the system that God has made. And so God's made this system for you to be able to bring sacrifices as he commands. So what do you do? You do the sacrifice. You bring the bull. You bring the goat. And you bring it, and then you get to the, the, the tabernacle, and you give it to the priest, and they say, no, we're not going to burn that. We're going to take that for ourselves. And so you're left needing a mediator. The priesthood is corrupt, and so you don't have access to God. It would be a, it'd be a terrible, terrible thing. That's that darkness, right? That like you feel that. It's just be, it'd be so hard to, to live in this scenario. And so the, the remnant in Israel has got to be crying out to God. And the question now is, what is God going to do about it? What's the Lord going to do? Is he going to move is he going to rescue his suffering people from their own corrupt and bad leaders? Certainly they don't deserve it. These are, their, these are them. These are, the, these are Israelites who are the bad leaders. Will God rescue his people from themselves? Well, the camera shifts. We have a kind of a cut scene where we, we cut back to Samuel, our, our hopeful child, who was born in, the, in, the, in chapter one, and now we're like, okay, there's something special about this Samuel. So the, the camera shifts back to him in verse 18. Samuel's going to be different, isn't he? Samuel served the Lord in the Lord's presence. This mere boy was dressed in the linen ephod. Each year, his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she was with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah, his wife, May the Lord give you children by this woman in place of the one she has given to the Lord. Then they would go home. The Lord paid attention to Hannah's need, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. So uh, Hannah is affirmed here. The Lord is pleased with her. Uh, Eli prays for her, and she uh, is blessed by the Lord's kindness with five more children. And we have the weird, like, cute little detail that she brings him a little robe each year, uh, and it seems like it's a linen ephod, which you're like, what, what's a linen ephod? Well, it turns out if you read through, like, the book of 1 Samuel or read before it in the Bible, you see that this is a special priestly garment. So there's some special ephod that priests are supposed to wear. Uh, and so little Samuel's running around as a boy, dressed like a priest, while the priests are running around not acting the way priests are supposed to. But this little Samuel, dressed like a priest, is uh, growing in the presence of the Lord, growing in the presence of God. There's something special going to happen with him. So, so there's this, this, this cut scene of hope. 
and now we have to cut scene back to Eli. So uh, hold that thought on on the, the coming of that hope. So 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 point so part two, we see Eli is inept, but Samuel is not. So Eli, what's the nature of Eli's sin? Now, at first, like you might try to think like, well, we just have seen Hophni and Phineas's sin. We don't know if it was the father's fault, like what he had done. Uh, but it's clear, God makes it clear in the passage that uh, he is guilty of honoring his sons more than God. We see God's indictment of Eli uh, in verses 27 through 29. So if you look at uh, 29, God says it explicitly. He says, when, why then do all of you despise my sacrifices and the offerings that I require in the place of worship? You have honored your sons more than me by making yourselves fat with the best parts of all the offerings of my people, Israel. So Eli had taken the good gift from the Lord of his sons, and he has uh, chosen to honor them over honoring God. Uh, In some sense, we're not surprised by this. Because uh, I think we feel it, that, that what, what, uh, what John Calvin put it, he said, uh, the human heart is a factory of idols. Our heart just so often will take something that is good and turn it into an idol. Children are a prime example. Um, you can think of it like this. There's a throne on your heart. And that's what is ruling your heart. And if you're a Christian then fundamentally, objectively, Christ is on the throne of your heart. Uh, that happened when you have received him, like that he is the ruler of your heart. But uh, practically, and our ongoing struggle with sin, there'll be other concerns and desires in your life that are fine when they're in their proper order, fine when, when, when Christ is on the throne and they're beneath uh, the throne, But those other concerns and desires will sprout legs and walk up and kick Jesus off the throne of your heart and sit and rule. And that formerly normal good desire will become a ruling desire. You can can ask yourself sort of x-ray questions to get at what these things might be. Something like, what am I willing to sin in order to get? What am I willing to sin in order to get? So one of those things that is often the case is one of the best things that God gives us, and that is children. Um, Eli's sin at this point is really obvious. It's really obvious that he's gotten to the point where he clearly values his children more than God. Uh, and there's some, this is, the end, the, this is when they're grownups, and this is like the end of uh, uh, what must have been a bad series of smaller steps in his parenting up until this point. At some point here, uh, it was communicated again and again in small decisions that the child was the center of the home or something, and then, and then God was not the center, where uh, Eli's idolizing of his children communicated to them that God is not worth ruling in his heart. It's interesting uh, to have this parent highlighted in this chapter, when we had Hannah highlighted in the last chapter, isn't it? It's such a stark contrast, where Hannah was such a godly 
mother in how she handled the Lord's blessing of a, of a son, whom she had said, if you bless me with a son, then I want to dedicate him to you. And so he, she takes him, not begrudgingly, it seems like, and gives him, dedicates him to the Lord to work in the temple, even though that means she doesn't get to live with him. What a, what a difference between that and Eli. Eli, who won't uh, even address his son's sins with him, and then Hannah, who is willing to dedicate her, her son to the work in the temple, in fact, means that she doesn't get to be around him as much. So, uh, so happy Mother's Day. <laughs> uh, at least we get, like, an example of the story of a bad dad and a good mom. So, um, there you go. All right, we got that for us. Um, so, as we, as we seek to parent, we obviously want to be Hannah's and not Eli's, Right? We want to be uh, stewards of our kids, not, um, not letting them be the, the sitting on the thrones of our hearts. Um, now, it's, diff- it's a little different than we want to be Hannah's in that, like, I'm not welcoming you or recommending you to come bring your kids to church and be like, okay, we'll see you next year. We'll bring you a new set of clothes. Um, that wouldn't work. Uh, so living in the age we live in, in the circumstance you live in, in that, hey, if you have children, they are yours, not to own, <laughs> not to have the rights over, but to steward, to steward towards an end. And that end, so that goal is that they will become Christians, <laughs> that they will embrace Christ and live for his glory. That is the end in mind that you have in parents. So that's like first thing of advice, I guess, of how we can be more like Hannah than Eli, is to parent with the end in mind. Have the picture of what success is in parenting, and that picture is your child is godly. That's the goal. Now, the, 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 the nub of it, the trouble of it is, is we, we have various lists of goals for our kids, right? And, and most of them are good and fine, right? Like, good and fine that you also want your kids to have, like, the ability to talk to other human beings in a reasonable way, right? That's good, okay? <laughs> like, it's good and fine that you want your kids to learn stuff in school. It's good and fine that you want your kids to have a job that they like um, and that they are uh, compensated for. That's, there's, there's all these other concerns that we're going to have for our kids that are correct, but here's the test, that heart x-ray question, right? If you could only have one, which would you choose? Godliness or whatever. Godliness or whatever else you want for your kids. Like, which one are you going to choose? Which one do your parenting decisions expose? Like, which one uh, are, is practically, you know the right answer, obviously, but which one is practically the way uh, that in your heart at any given moment is uh, on the throne? So, the second bit of advice then is, is so parent the end of mind, and the second advice is, is repent early and often. David has this beautiful prayer in in Psalm 139 where he says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. So the Lord invites us into his presence to say, Lord, expose my heart uh, to ways in which I need to repent and change. That is his good and normal uh, way to, to live in good relationship with him. So be quick to suspect yourself, 
to su suspect your motives, even in parenting. Question the gray areas, the perfectly fine things your kids are doing that aren't sinful at all, but question them. Just ask yourself, okay, and ask the Lord, okay, am I poorly motivated in how we're going about making these like familial decisions? Um, and when you do that, then you get to apply the gospel, right? If you say, okay, no, I think this other concern was sitting on the throne of my heart, then you could say, okay, good. The good news is you can be forgiven of that sin, and Jesus is a far better ruler on the throne of your heart than, um, than whatever that was, a far, more, uh, a far better God. So, so that's Eli's first sin, all right? His, his child idolatry, essentially. Um, his second is related, and that's his abdication of authority. Eli abdicates his authority. Here's, here's a question. Uh, in the story that we've seen so far with Hophni and Phinehas and Eli, is this a passage of the cautionary tale of the abuse of authority? Well, Hophni and Phinehas abuse the authority. So, yeah. Or is this the story of the cautionary tale of the dangers of abdicating authority? Well, I think that's also going on with Eli. I think we've got both in this, that the Bible holds together this tension of saying, hey, uh, beware, because of human sin, authority is often abused. People in authority, sinners in authority, will often use that authority to the detriment of those under their authority for the fattening of their own selves. And that is sinful and wrong and, and, and dangerous. <clears throat> if, we don't, if, if we don't get that from, um, from Hophni and Phinehas yet, we'll, we're going to get to the character Saul soon enough. So, um, so spoiler alert on that one, right? But, but on the flip side, beware, because of human sin, authority is likely to be abdicated which is also bad. Eli in this book has given two rebukes so far. Uh, remember last week, we, we saw him rebuke Hannah. He walked up to a woman praying in the tabernacle and said to her, how long will you go, go on being drunk? Get rid of your wine. He was harsh. It was an unwarranted rebuke. It was like factually wrong. I mean, not the best priestly move there. And then, and then you see how he rebukes his sons. And it's, and it's different. Uh, look at uh, 23. <clears throat> he says, why are you doing these things? I've heard about your evil actions from all these people. No, my sons, the news I hear the Lord's people spreading is not good. If one person sins against another, God can intercede for him. But if a person sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? So here's the question. Is that a rebuke of a high priest to a, 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 an under priest? Is that a rebuke of a father to a son? It's a, it's, it's a rebuke with no authority, what, what Eli does. He, he offers that rebuke. A, a, an underling could have said the same thing to Hophni and Phinehas. But Eli was the one man who was both their father and had that fatherly authority, should have had that fatherly authority over them, and the high priest who should have had authority over them. This is living in a time when adultery is a capital offense, where by God's law, those who commit adultery were supposed to be 
executed for that. And so Eli's not coming to him with no like authority to be, to be addressing him, but he does. He just comes to them and says, you shouldn't do this. It's bad before the Lord. But he doesn't use the authority that God has given him. So we've just got to hold these things in tension, right? We can't abandon authority because of its abuses. Um, there's a danger in that as well. And we also have to be very aware of the abuses of authority. So if you hold authority in any of your roles, be careful. Don't be feeding yourselves instead of serving those under your care. Be careful with that authority. But at the same time, don't think that abdicating your authority is also the safe option. You see this in parenting sometimes, don't you? Where, where uh, parents treat their children, even kids, as peers instead of uh, someone who they have authority over, right? If you're a parent of kids, God has given you uh, authority over them. Not absolute authority, authority under the Lord, but authority. And so you should bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Use your authority rightly. Okay, so Eli idolizes his children. He abdicates his authority. And what's the result of his sin? Well, um, it's not good for, for Hophni and Phinehas, that's for sure, right? It's not, it's not good for them, for him to uh, be this way. Yet you see in verse 25, um, but they would not listen to their father since the Lord intended to kill them. Uh, at the end of the day, they're going to stand before uh, the judgment seat of God, either on their own merits or on the merits of Christ. So we, we remember here, parenting is influential, but it is not determinative. Um, and as we're starting to get more and more depressed, the, the camera pans again, right? Verse 26. By contrast, the boy Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. So even so, as, okay, Hophni and Phinehas are bad, uh, but Samuel's okay. Samuel's good. And then, okay, Eli's even bad. His rebuke is useless. And then, okay, but Samuel is different. He's growing and he's learning and he's growing in competence and he's being recognized by the people and by God. He stands as a strong contrast to Hophni and Phinehas, and to Eli. So now we see the shift that God is acting. The faithful remnant have been crying out, and God is going to work to remove and replace. So we get to the third section movement here. So God is working to remove and replace. You've got verses 27 to 29, and that's God's indictment of Eli. You've got 30 through 34, that paragraph is God pronouncing his judgment on Eli, and then we'll get that final paragraph is this promise of hope. So uh, first of all, I guess, what is the judgment that God is, is making for Eli? Uh, <clears throat> verse 30, therefore, this is the declaration of the Lord, the God of Israel. I did say that your family and your forefather's family would walk before me forever. But now this is the Lord's declaration, no longer. For those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disgraced. 
So God had made a, a promise, apparently a conditional promise, to Eli's family that they would walk before him and be priests in the tabernacle. But Eli has so badly despised the Lord that God is going to disgrace him. They're going to be cut off from this great duty. God gives more detail of what he's going to do in 31. Look, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your forefather's house so that none in your family will reach old age. You will see distress in the place of worship in spite of all that is good in Israel and no one in your family will ever reach old age. Any man from your family I do not cut off from my altar will bring grief and sadness to you. All your descendants will die violently. This will be the sign that this will come to you concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Both of them will die in the same day. His family is going to be ruined. Not uh, totally cut off. Not everyone will die, but everyone will die violent deaths. They won't have peace in God's uh, tabernacle uh, ministering him, uh, to him. But the sign that this is going to happen, Eli's going to know for sure this is going to happen when Hophni and Phinehas die on the same day. So God's punishment, it seemed slow in coming, but now that it's here, it is uh, strong. Even jump forward a couple sentences, the last, the last verse, 36, says, anyone who is left in your family will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. He will say, please appoint me to some priestly office so I can have a piece of bread to eat. So at some point in the future, there will be one descendant of uh, Eli who will be not the one fattening himself with uh, the people's uh, sacrifices, but he, instead he will go to a faithful priest and beg for help and for food. In 1 Samuel chapter 22, you have a group of 85 priests living in the place called Nob, and these 85 priests are unjustly slaughtered by King Saul. Those descendants who are in the same family of Eli are, um, are killed with violence in the way this is predicted. And, and then uh, Abiathar is one who escapes, and he runs to David for uh, protection and shelter. And David gives him uh, protection, becomes part of David's crew when David's on the run. So the Lord acts. He acts to uh, bring about his judgment on Eli and his family, and it is uh, severe. We get to the, um, the promise part in verse 35. It says, then I will raise up a faithful priest for myself. He will do whatever is in my heart and mind. I will establish a lasting dynasty for him, and he will walk before my anointed one for all time. So we've got two characters mentioned in this small verse, future characters. We've got an anointed one, and in this world we anoint kings. So it's some sort of future right king, anointed one. And then you also have this 
faithful priest. So we've got this promise of a faithful priest who will do whatever is in God's heart and mind. Man, what a great, amazing contrast to Eli, right? That he'll do whatever is in God's heart and mind, and that will be what marks this priest's uh, life and ministry. It's amazing. So one thing you got to realize is, is, is God's severe mercy. Severe and mercy shouldn't go together, but they do And when you're talking about God, right? It, because what is God being merciful to Israel entail? It entails, in this, in, in this story, it entails him bringing about this harsh judgment on uh, Eli and his family. That same act of judging Eli and his family is an act of love and protection for Israel. He's got this remove and replace thing going on, and he remo- that removal is him being just, indeed, and him uh, punishing the wicked. And that's hard to look at sometimes. That's, the, that's that aspect that is like, can make us uncomfortable. But we can just understand, at least from this story, that the same heart of God that loves you is the same heart of God that threatens uh, such punishment if you're not in Christ. The same heart of God that does such judgment is the same heart of God that sent Jesus to, 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 to save you. And so it's not like God is, is multi-personality disorder, like different. It's the same heart. So you can trust this God. His mercy may be severe, but it is Mercy, nonetheless. So how is this prophecy fulfilled? This faithful priest who walks before the Lord's anointed for forever. Well, uh, sort of Samuel. Samuel is going to play the role uh, specifically not of of priest formally, but of judge uh, through this passage. He's going to be essentially the last judge in the series of judges because he's going to have some military or governmental kind of role to play, but he's also going to have some prof- prophetic speaking for God and priestly doing sacrifices role to play as he ushers in the next age in Israel's history of having kings. And so Samuel is faithful in that, and that's a great thing about him. He, he's going he's gonna to deliver. The, the hope that we've been uh, hoping for in this passage is, is being hinted at is going to come true to fruition. But he doesn't fulfill it all the way. He's not going to walk before God's anointed forever. In fact, he's going to die uh, in, 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 in the coming chapters. So there is sort of fulfilled as well in the like Levitical priests who served in the time of David's kingship and of Solomon's kingship. So they were faithful priests then at that point too. The, the sacrifices were happening uh, more or less correctly and then under uh, Solomon, the whole temple was built, and God's glory visited. It was, it was good. There was, there was faithful priests serving them. So there's, a, there's a, a partial fulfillment there as well. But again, none of them walked before the Lord's anointed forever. In fact, uh, the temple is uh, overtaken by God's people's enemies, and we're left wondering in the Old Testament, how is this ever, the end of the Old Testament ends with us saying, how is this going to be fulfilled? And the fulfillment, of course, is in Jesus. 
if you still have your Bibles open, you can flip forward to Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, we'll end here because this is so helpful. See, there was a problem in like the biblical storyline, a problem that Jesus was going to be the king in the line of David, which means he's in the tribe of Judah. So that's his lineage. But the priests were in the tribe of Levi. So which was it going to be? Is Jesus going to be a priest or is Jesus going to be a king? Well, there's this like sub storyline in the Old Testament that is so interesting where there is this other priest named Melchizedek. And this other priest named Melchizedek actually created a way, God created a way, established with Melchizedek, for uh, a different kind of priest to exist. Not in the order of Levi, but in the order of Melchizedek. It's, it's attained through the power of uh, an unkillable life, an indestructible life. And so Jesus is a priest in the order, not of Levi, but in the order of Melchizedek. If, you're, if you've got um, Hebrews 7 open, let's look at uh, verse 23. Now, many have become Levitical priests, since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But because he, Jesus, remains forever, he holds his priesthood perpetually. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. Brothers and sisters, we have the high priest we need. We have the high priest even today. Even at this time, Jesus in his resurrected body is in the presence of the Father interceding for you. What a gift that is. We, we go through the horror of considering and imagining living without such a mediator in order for us to get to this moment, we understand, no, you have Christ as your advocate with the Father even right now. He is the high priest that you need currently, forever. And you remember what, this is so interesting, you remember what, what Eli said in his rebuke uh, to, to Hophni and Phinehas. He said, um, if a man sins against God, who will intercede for him? And the answer, of course, is you. You're the priest. You're supposed to intercede to God for sinful humans. He's completely abdicated that, that, that job. But Jesus has not. Jesus is your priest who will and does advocate for you with the Father. And he offers the kind of sacrifice that's different than the Old Testament sacrifices. Verse 26 of, of Hebrews 7. For this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He does not need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all time. Then he offered himself. Jesus is the high priest forever who administers a better sacrifice the sacrifice of himself. He is both the sacrificial lamb and the priest administering the sacrifice. This is the gospel. This is the good news what uh, we accept as Christians that make us Christians. Jesus has offered for you the once and for all sacrifice, and he lives 
to apply it to you even now. So please take a moment to reflect on this passage and prepare your hearts for the Lord's Supper.